0: Radio satellite. Listen to the Anarchist Wool this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist Wall this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is coming from the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano, and I'm hosting today's program. That's right, I'm hosting today's program. Yep. Anarchy Anarchos without rulers How do you create a society without rulers? You devolve power, which is a fancy word for saying sharing power And you hold wealth in common Very simple concepts, exceptionally simple concepts That's what anarchy is about It's for simple people like you and me That's what it is Now, we've got a lot of things to talk about today Well, I have You're listening, I'm talking uh, but as I said, you can change the dynamics if you wish because uh, I do run a program called Radical Australia from 4 to 5 p.m. on a Wednesday and I do live interviews with interesting people. And if you think you're interesting and you've got a bit radical bent, why don't you give me a call on 0439 and we'll do a one-hour interview. The only catch is I only do live interviews. I don't do telephone interviews I like to look at the quarry eye to eye. So uh, if you do know somebody who's interested, you'd like to come on Radical Australia, that's an option because what we want to do in that program is share people's experiences and hopefully encourage other people to take up the uh, radical baton as the older members of the uh, radical community shuffle off their mortal coil, that includes me, to who knows where. Okay. Markets. I wonder if you heard the term bond market and stock market. Now, we're told economics is some type of science, which obviously it isn't. But some people think it's a science. And everybody in the stock market business is very concerned. Because normally the bond market and the stock market rise together. Normally. Normally. And the bond market is a market which is basically created by nation states where they borrow money and they pay you interest for that money. And the interest rates on bonds has been falling quite dramatically because everybody out there realises that we're on the verge of a recession, not just in Australia but worldwide. And all the facts and figures that are coming out of the uh, economic model – you like that – economic model – point to the idea that things are not brilliant as far as you know, generating profits is concerned. If you can't generate profits in a capitalist society, you're in a big problem. So obviously, low interest rates, the bond market, people do not tend to invest Now, currently we have a second problem. We have an ageing population in Australia and we are now reaching the critical stage where superannuation, was, I think, was introduced in the mid-1990s and we're seeing people reaching retirement age who are now relying on investments. That's right, investments to fund their old age and not relying on an old age pension, which is given to you by the state because you've worked hard all your life. But it is something that you've got to deal with. You've got to be out there in the private marketplace trying to get a return for the goodies you've got in your piggy bank. And if you don't get the return, your old age can be exceptionally miserable. So with an increasing ageing population relying on self-funded retirees, decreasing interest rates on the bond market, everybody is throwing their money into the stock market because interest rates are so low, you'd be lucky to get 1.5% from your local bank. And in some countries like Japan, you've actually got, and Switzerland, you've actually got to pay the bank to keep your money in the bank. But interest rates are so low that a lot of self-funded retirees are now throwing their money into the stock market. So we have a disconnect between the bond market rate and the stock market profitability. Now, many people, and I'm not an expert and I don't pretend to be an expert, and more importantly, I don't want to be an expert in corporate economics, Uh, but many experts in the field are telling us that we're looking at a market correction, which is a fancy word for a drop in stock market prices between 20 and 25%, which would mean that the value of many self-funded retirees' investments would fall by a quarter which is, you know, over a few days, which is an extraordinary drop in a nest egg which you've built up over a lifetime of work, you know, through superannuation contributions. So keep your eyes out on this one. We've got a bond market which is going down, a stock market which is going up. The stock market no longer reflects economic activity on the ground. It is independent. It is now independent of economic activity on the ground. And when that happens... We have major problems, and unfortunately, not just for the corporate world, there'll be major problems for many tens of thousands of self-funded retirees who've been forced to uh, gamble on the stock market to um, keep their, uh, you know, retirement plans afloat. All right, let's move on. Corporate welfare. Corporate welfare. Now, I'm sure you all see the. Programs on television and the crap on the net, you know about all you know welfare dependency, you know as if it's some type of disease, but nobody seems to talk about corporate welfare in two thousand and nineteen. Now, if you want an if you want an example of corporate welfare, look at the fifteen billion dollars that's been allocated to the Murray Darling, theoretically to uh, increase water supply in the river system. But we've seen money, which is legally, not illegally, legally being pumped into infrastructure by corporate irrigators to increase their share of water. Isn't this extraordinary? And the government just says, Ah, well, it's an agreement. That's the way it is. Nothing to see here move on move on move move on just extraordinary there are many examples of corporate welfare in our in our lives many examples if you look at the mining sector sector uh fuel excise um, um revenue about 4 billion dollars a year corporate welfare 4 4.5 $4. billion dollars of uh taxpayers money given to private Owners of property, most of them who's got negative gearing in rent assistance, instead of building a network of homes and then renting them out to people through the public sector. We see $4.5 billion being given as corporate welfare, you know, to the uh, private housing market. Uh, Investors are already enjoying all the um, positive gains of uh, negative gearing, which will go on indefinitely after the last state election. Then you've got another six billion dollars being given to the private health insurance industry. Again, that's a gift. And then when you talk about gifts, how about the twenty billion dollars which will be given as uh, will be given to stock market people who own shares? You know, think about that. Another twenty billion dollars a year. So already out of a budget. Of less than a trillion dollars, about 950 billion, you already, already got 15% going to corporate welfare. And I haven't even scratched the barrel. Then you've got all these religious institutions that don't pay tax. That's corporate welfare. Then you've got taxation friendly laws, which uh, allow franking credits, as I said before, 20 billion a year and negative gearing. That's corporate welfare, although some people who are not corporations. Do take advantage of that situation. And the list goes on and on. Then we've got all these organizations which are providing services and in inverted commas on behalf of the Commonwealth government in the so called welfare sector, the social security sector, you know, in homelessness, more corporate welfare. 40 cents of every dollar, which is given by government to private organizations to provide services which should be provided by government, going to profit, into managing those organizations or into profits for those organizations. Then you look at the nursing home sector, which is dominated by three or four large corporations. Again, corporate welfare. We look at the, uh, preschool, early learning centers, more corporate welfare. So you can see where the uh, taxpayers' money is going. It's not going to look after the needs of Social Security beneficiaries or people on low wages or people who are finding difficulty in keeping a roof over their head. It's going to the pockets of uh, mainly large corporations. Obviously, a few crumbs fall out to uh, um, minor investors, but the majority of this money goes to major corporations. Then you get the ridiculous situation, which I spoke of last year, We've got mining corporations making billions of dollars and paying peanuts in royalties to state governments and and the federal government. Quite extraordinary, quite an extraordinary situation. And the thing is, we voted for it. We want it. We love it. Think about it. Think about it. Think about all the taxpayer funds which goes into all these areas which are basically there to uh, help the corporate sector Make a buck. Unbelievable. Now, members of public interest before corporate interest, yes, many of you should start receiving your uh, big envelopes. Now, unfortunately, I've run out of stamps. We're about 400 stamps short. So if you can help me with stamps over the next uh, week or so, to be useful. I'd like to uh, put out the uh, policy ballot papers out by the end of the month. So we're getting there, but another four or five hundred stamps will be quite useful That's our one dollar stamps will be very useful because uh public interest before corporate interest is a democratically it's a direct demo, democratic organization we've had two congresses to uh organize policies in eight particular areas uh these uh congresses have now come up with uh statements which will go out to members and members will vote on whether they want these issues to be incorporated as uh Uh, public interest before corporate interest policy. So if you do want to vote on policy for public interest before corporate interest, I encourage you to become a member before the end of July. Download the application form from pipsi.net and if we get your application before the end of July, you'll get the uh, Pipsi policy ballot paper electoral packet and be able to vote on policies. And talking about policies, we all know it's NADOC week this week. National Aboriginal and Island Day of Observance Committee. And obviously, people are making token efforts around the country to, uh, you know, um, remember that uh, we live on stolen land. And it's quite interesting to see the uh, Minister for Indigenous Australians, it's now Indigenous Australians, not First Nations people, but Indigenous Australians, uh, Mr. White, talk about a referendum during this term of the Morrison government. Uh, regarding who knows what, and that's the key, isn't it? Because when you look at policy and you look at the PIPSI policy regarding uh, treaty, uh, we've based our ideas basically on the Uluru Statement, which is a gathering of uh, delegates from across the country, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who thrashed out three uh, concepts which they want to be uh, pushed as hard as possible which were rejected in 2017 and 2018, which are starting to kind of uh, uh, go back on the uh, political, political and social agenda in 2019. And they're based on the three words which are being used to promote NAIDOC week this week. And that is voice, treaty, truth. That was the essence of the Uluru Statement, Voice, Treaty, Truth. Now, people say, why do you need an advisory group from this country's First Nations people to be incorporated in the Australian Constitution? Well, it's very simple. Anybody who's been around for the last 30 years will remember ATSIC, which was an organisation where Indigenous Australians voted for representatives who then provided advice to government. We had an advisory group 30 years ago or 20 years ago. We had an advisory group. It had been established by the Keaton government. It was an advisory group which was directly elected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. But... That advisory group was abolished. Now, there may have been issues regarding one or two of its members, but you don't abolish an organisation because there are issues with a few of its members. And this is what happened with ATSIC. It was just abolished by Parliament. Bang. And that's why, as far as a voice is concerned, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, this country's First Nations people, want that advisory voice to be incorporated in the Australian Constitution because that would prevent a future government from abolishing that advisory group. And that's why a referendum is important. Obviously, what statement will be put to the Australian people is a central issue. Because I don't, I think what the Uluru statement did demonstrate is that people do not want cosmetic recognition in the Australian Constitution. They want a real voice, not a voice in Parliament, but an advisory group, treaty. Well, we all know about treaty that Australia is the only British colony that I know, and I may be wrong. There may be another one or two, where the colonisers did not sign treaties with the colonised. And although there's a process going on in Victoria currently regarding treaty, a long and torturous process, the idea is do you have a treaty for the whole of the country or does each specific cultural language group, there's over 200, sign individual treaties with the federal government? and whether you have treaties at state level and local council level. So treaty, the journey towards treaty, is a central feature of NADOC Week. And truth is essential. We can't move forward, and I keep saying this, and we kept saying it during the Tanneminoi and Morbor Hina struggle to get a monument erected here in Melbourne to the uh, frontier walls. We cannot move forward as far as a treaty is concerned until the truth is aired publicly. So it's quite interesting that this year's NADOC statement looks at the three central issues that need to be addressed by all Australians in order to begin to heal. The ulcer, which exists in this country, the festering wound that exists between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, and that is voice, treaty, truth telling. If they could have truth telling in South Africa and Rwanda after periods of uh, fight for uh, you know independence and civil unrest. I can't see why we can't have truth telling in Australia in 2019 because truth telling educates people. It's not just about saying things, it's about acting as a mechanism by which to educate Australians, especially recent migrants and migrants who have come from overseas, and also, you know, many Australians who have no idea no idea regarding the history of this country. So NAIDOC week, three sentiments, voice, treaty and truth. And in our policy statement, that's the public interest before corporate interest policy statement, we tackle all three in the treaty section. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, I understand President Groper is a little bit upset. Obviously, he hasn't heard what I call him. He'd be very upset. I mean, look at the British ambassador. I mean, the ambassador's role is very simple. An ambassador is appointed by a country. Well, obviously, they've got to be accepted by the other country. And their role basically is to protect the interests of the country which appoints them in that particular country, and the ambassador's role is to provide, you know, an opinion to the government they represent about the country in which they are. And the ambassador from Britain used three words which, um, you know, President Groper Trump found a little bit offensive, insecure, dysfunctional. Uniquely dysfunctional. I like that. (laughs) Uniquely dysfunctional. And inept. Okay? Not nice words. So Trumpy boy's got a little bit upset about it all and he's not going to talk to the ambassador. Now, it's interesting that the uh, Tories, the Conservatives in England, are in the process of finalising uh, an election for a new leader between Mr. Hunt and some other bloke with yellow red hair who I've forgotten who he is or wild hair, you know. One is a Trump apologist, and the other one says the ambassador should stay there till he's uh, either expelled or uh, they you know, they make a decision to change the ambassador. So it'll be interesting to see who's going to win that little race to become the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Not that it matters that much these days what happens to the United Kingdom, but that, that's a different story. It's really a disunited kingdom. You've got people in, you know, Wales wanting their independence. You've got people in Scotland narrowly voting not to become independent and the list goes on and on. So we'll see. But, but you know, I just thought it's funny. I mean, you do have to. But it, But on a more serious note, Have you noticed how people use the word terrorism? And uh, nobody ever mentions the word economic terrorism. And what we are seeing currently is quite extreme forms of economic terrorism being applied by the United States government. Now, we've had decades of economic terrorism directed against Venezuela, which has basically helped to create the economic and social and political crisis which is occurring in Venezuela. We've seen decades of economic terrorism by our states against Cuba. We've seen decades of economic terrorism against North Korea and decades of economic terrorism which has been ramped up against Iran by this inept, dysfunctional, insecure president and his government, the B team they call them, not the A team, the B team. But see, economic terrorism is a a strategy that is used to create economic inequality and shortages in a country, which then leads to social discontent against the government and regime change. So we have seen for decades the United States and the old Soviet Union, to a lesser degree, using economic terrorism as a precursor to violent regime change. And you look at there's assassinations, you name it, it's there. But it's quite interesting to see what will happen in Iran, because the difference between Iran and North Korea is very simple. Well, in Iran, at least they go through the formalities of having elections, although the candidates are limited. They don't bother with that in North Korea. But North Korea has nuclear weapons, and uh, Iran does not. Now, it would be ironical if the economic terrorism, which has been uh, ratcheted up, against Iran by the United States of America leads to uh, Iran becoming a nuclear power in the Middle East. So think about it because economic terrorism has fundamental direct impacts on the people less able to survive. That's where the impact is. It's not on the ruling classes. Or those with power and wealth, it is on ordinary people, and it is directed at them specifically, in order to create a climate of unrest and possible re- regime change, where we see a regime which is friendly to the government of the day, friendly to the you know the United States been being inserted. So here we have it: an inept, dysfunctional government led by an insecure president using economic terrorism around the world not just against its so-called enemies but against its so-called friends like the united kingdom it's quite extraordinary really and no wonder the world is sliding into recession bond markets are falling and uh all those self-funded retirees are going to wake up with one morning and say, my God, my gods, where has it all gone? Because, see, it's all interlinked because we do live in a globalised world with a global economy. So it's all interlinked. Increasing economic terrorism, increasing unrest, decreasing trade, bingo, more problems for you and me. And if you think... You know, it doesn't affect you. Think again. It affects each and every one of us. Currently, there's a big military exercise going on in uh, around uh, Darwin area up there, North Queensland. Sorry, Talisman Saber, I think it's called. And there's about thirty four, thirty five thousand troops launching a uh, mock invasion on Australia. Right, and it's quite interesting to see the militarisation that has been occurring quietly in Northern Australia with the um, allocation of more and more US troops to be permanently based in Northern Australia. I'm not just talking about Pine Gap, the facilities, but I'm just talking about feet on the ground. And with the uh, decision... To set up a military base, a joint military base in New Guinea and Manus Island, we can actually see the increase in militarisation which is occurring in that part of Australia. And if you've gone to North Queensland or Northern Australia to get away from it all, well, I'm afraid you're going to be the centre of it all. Because if push comes to shove and there is some type of uh, warfare, I mean, they are now a major target, a major target because as the US troop numbers increase, and there's over 2,500 now permanently stationed in the Northern Territory, as the uh, friction between uh, China and the United States increases, the possibility of confrontation increases. And we are right in it up to our necks as a country. And if you think we're not, just look at what's happened in the last decade or so regarding the uh, militarisation of this country and the changing rhetoric in terms of who is an enemy and who is not. Now, I normally don't make very many comments about what's happening around the world, but I think when we find that we, we are being slowly drawn into an alliance with the United States in America, which currently has a uniquely dysfunctional government, not my words, the words of the uh, British ambassador in uh, in Washington, who I think would know a thing or two, a lot more than I would ever know. Um, When he says that, and we see United States troop numbers increase in northern Australia, the number of military contracts increasing, the number, the, the amount of money which has been allocated for so-called defences purposes, when in other words we should say for attacking purposes, the number of Australian troops that have died in unnecessary wars around the world in the last few decades as we pursue this nationalistic, uh, militaristic uh, adventurism, not for our sake but just to hold the hands of our major ally, the United States of America, you begin to understand that there are real consequences, not just for the country as a whole, but very real practical consequences for people living in Northern Australia, whether it's it's the Northern Territory, North Queensland or uh, North West Australia. Real consequences, very real consequences. And uh, I can't see this changing in the very near future unless we start saying, hey, what's going on? What's all this about? What's this got to do with us? Why are we militarising? Why are we allowing so many United States troops to be stationed you know, in this country? Why are we forming joint military bases? Why are we having all this money being uh, diverted to build all this um, military infrastructure? What do they know that we don't know? Hmm? What's planned for the future? You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on threecr.org.au. You want to look? Uh, we've got a new initiative uh, called an Instagram initiative called at Steps to a Home. You just go to Instagram at Steps to a Home, all one word, Steps to a Home. You'll come across this uh, new initiative to uh, promote our campaign to promote public housing as a viable alternative to the current housing crisis not just to homelessness but to the housing crisis if you go to that what uh, is happening every week there will be two people being interviewed about uh, their opinions about what's happening and there's a photograph there so if you're interested Instagram at Steps to a Home all one word Steps to a Home Steps to a Home Now, this campaign, it's quite interesting. Well, I think it's the word of the day, isn't it? Interesting, interesting, interesting. I think I've said it a billion times. Sorry about that. But, look, we've been conducting since late, since December 2016, a public housing campaign because public housing, like every other public asset, is now being privatised across the country, and especially in Victoria, which has an abysmal, abysmal, uh, record regarding public housing and when you consider a labor government has been in power in victoria i think for the last 14 of the last 20 years or is it even 15 you realize what's been going on now the few, the older uh, housing minister mr martin foley has been transferred to mental health because he made a bit of a botch up of the uh, public housing sector in his attempts to uh, privatize it you know, to set up uh, affordable housing and Community housing groups, and they're just keywords for private organisations, you know, running housing. And we saw in the last 24 hours, you know, a number of the mayors, I think from uh, Sydney, uh, Hobart, Melbourne, meet up in Brisbane with the homelessness minister. He wanted to put a different spin on homelessness. It's quite interesting. He wanted to put a spin on it. You know, and he said, well, we're putting $4.5 billion into the rent assistance. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this government, $4.5 into rent assistance, basically all that does is push artificially elevated rents for people on low incomes. Why don't they give people that money for something else? But that's a different story. So we now have a situation, especially in Western Australia and parts of South Australia, where jobs are scarce that we are seeing a mortgage crisis, irrespective of the low interest rates. You can't service a home loan if you haven't got a job, can you? Or if you've got part-time insecure work. So we've seen this pressure occurring on the housing market, and that's why our campaign is called Public Housing, Everybody's Business. Because our philosophy is very, very simple. I mean, we're simple people, and that's why we're effective. Nothing is complex. They tell you, oh, it's such a complex issue, you could never solve it. Well, it's very simple. People need homes. Housing has become a commodity. It's an investment commodity. When you've got more than 45% of homes being owned by investors... And investors you know snapping up about forty to fifty percent of homes during auctions, you realize you 've got a problem when you 've got the rate of home ownership dropping and more and more people being forced into rental accommodation and secure rental accommodation at high cost, you begin to understand that there is an issue out there, not just in terms of the one in two hundred people one hundred and sixteen thousand people that are homeless, but in terms of the people who will be potentially homeless in the near future if things don't change. And the main reason this has occurred is exactly the same reason that has occurred in every other facet of human existence in this country over the last 40 years during the privatised privatisation revolution. Now, what people don't seem to understand that you've got three types of economies. You've got a communist economy, or you've got a state-run economy, you've got a privately-run economy, and you've got a mixed economy, or you've got a combination of both. And what we've seen in this country over the last 40 years and most of the world, and I'm going to use those four words again, during the globalisation, corporatization, privatisation, deregulation, revolution, what you have seen is the expansion of the private sector in areas which were traditionally, services were provided by the public sector. We saw the privatisation of the banking system. While the Commonwealth Bank was owned by the people of Australia before it was privatised by a Labour government, we had real competition in the banking sector. It wasn't just a matter of you being told, to change banks, there was real competition in two ways. One, if you had your money in a government-owned bank, which was the Commonwealth Bank, you had an automatic government guarantee on your resources, which is a little bit better than a private guarantee on resources in a bank. And two, it actually provided real competition in the marketplace. Then you go to the energy sector. We've seen the privatisation of energy manufacturing and distribution. And we've seen an escalation in prices and a decrease in services during that period to such an extent that lives were lost during the uh, bushfires here in Victoria a decade ago as a direct consequence. And the courts, you know, found this. Not me. Who am I to make this statement? The courts as a direct consequence of uh, transmission lines actually not not being maintained. And that's how private corporations make profits. They gouge the eyes out of the people who buy the product, and that's why energy prices are up. They decrease maintenance, decrease services, maximise returns to their major shareholders who are normally in these situations overseas-owned corporations. So there you've got it. So in the energy sector, the privatisation of the energy sector has not resulted in decreased prices because of competition. It's resulted in the growth of corporations and increased prices and no competition in the sector. Again, the public housing sector. Housing has become a commodity. It's not a place for somewhere to live in a secure environment. It is a commodity. It is an investment. You hope that the price of your home will increase and you'll have a bit of spare cash at the end of your life. It's a commodity. It's not a roof over your head. Now, while there was a strong public housing sector in this country, it provided competition to the private sector. Very simple. You got a lot of people living in public housing and paying twenty five percent of the income for that privilege, then the number of people who that would then need to rent would dramatically decrease. If rents decrease, investors would move out of the property market at the lower end and property prices would decrease. Property prices would decrease, which would mean more people would be able to enter the private housing market who's actually actually afford it in in a in a, in a period where wage growth is basically non-existent. So there you've got it. And that's why we say public housing is everybody's business. And even if you're a, an investor or even a billionaire, it's in your, your, your favour to have a strong public housing sector because you get social cohesion and you get less crime and less violence. It's very simple. If people are in safe, secure housing, obviously there'll still be violence, but the pressures will decrease on individuals. And if you've got a strong public housing sector, you don't need to inadvertently trip over people in the CBD who are sleeping rough. That's the way it goes. And how do you fund it? Simply. You quarantine stamp duty revenue on the sp- when people buy a home for public housing. In Victoria, which I'm familiar with the figures, you could spot purchase or build twenty to 25,000 public housing units and homes every year. You get rid of homelessness in a month, the waiting list in a year, and you could house a million people in Victoria, which would be about 20% of the population, or about of the population within a decade. So there'd be few, you know, we wouldn't have all this huge road things going on. So what? What's more important? Getting to work 15 minutes earlier or having people housed in secure, safe housing? All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Now, Martin Foley is now the Minister for Mental Health and I think it's about time Martin considered retiring I mean, superannuation fund should be up to the raft. Has been a parliamentarian. He's now he's he's stuffed up the public housing sector, and now he's stuffing up the mental health sector. It's just amazing, amazing. There's a royal commission currently being conducted into mental health services in Victoria because they're basically non-existent. And you've got to understand that today, as I speak around 60 to 70% of people who find themselves in prison in Victoria and I assume the figures are roughly the same in the rest of the country but I'm only familiar with the Victorian figures have significant mental health issues and some of the more dreadful crimes we've seen with the loss of life in this in the, in Victoria and other parts of Australia over the past few years have been committed by individuals who have significant mental health issues. That doesn't mean everybody with a mental health issue is going to commit a dreadful crime. But what it means is that we have a system in place today that is actually not able to deal with the avalanche of mental health issues which we are seeing in this country today an avalanche which is, crosses all age groups, which is reflected in the high suicide rate in this country. And to a significant degree, Mr Foley is right. The system is disjointed and underfunded. Disjointed and underfunded. And it's in everybody's interests every individual's interest that we have a significant publicly run and publicly funded mental health system because all the models people are looking at currently is about outsourcing these services to private organisations as people have outsourced homelessness to private organisations as people have outsourced the provision, you know, of Centrelink, not Centrelink, provision of, uh, you know, job agencies to the private sector. Now, I was contacted by a friend who's shown me a little piece of paper. I mean, uh, this friend of mine I've known for many years, and um, she's been forced to attend some of these, you know, these things, and she could not believe what's happening currently. She's in a group, right? of long-term unemployed which has been managed by the Salvation Army and they're actually being given Self, uh, Salvation Army material during these sessions so the Salvation Army is being paid right paid to push its propaganda among people who are unemployed and marginalised who are very vulnerable and if they don't turn up, the laws have now been changed which allows the provider to actually cancel a person's Centrelink payments because they don't attend one of these so-called job searches. And if there is a rot in this country, it's the rot of these job agencies who go through the motions of trying to find jobs in a public sector which doesn't have jobs, tick the boxes and get paid. But to see a specific religious group's propaganda with their symbols on it, being shoved down the necks of people who are long-term unemployed, and it's all done legally, all done legally, because it's all outsourced, highlights the huge dangers of outsourcing government responsibilities. And that's what we see, the outsourcing of government responsibilities. And when I was talking about corporate welfare, I forgot to mention the billions of dollars which are given to private corporate schools in order for them to function. So corporate welfare is the name of the game. So if you want to make a buck in 2019 don't get a trade set up a company which provides a service on behalf of the government and pocket 40 cents of every dollar you are given legally to provide that service and try to skimp on that service as much as possible and if you're a religious based organization use that uh, service and that power you have to you know ram your particular Religious viewpoint down people's throats. Listen to the anarchist world this week, broadcast across Australia via the community radio network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, people say, Well, Joe, you're so negative. Well, I'm not being negative, I've been realistic. I'm being positive, and I'll tell you why I'm being positive. Since early 2015, I've been involved in an organisation, in an organising capacity called Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. Now if you look at the cross benches in the Senate today, the new Senate, there are six, six cross benches and it's quite interesting. There are two from South Australia from the centre Alliance, which is the old Xenophon Party, and they've got another three years to plug on, I think. There's the newly re-elected Senator Jackie Lambie, you know jumps all over the place. Then you've got the two conservative uh, divided nation Senators, and then you've got the uh, the Australian Conservative Senator, Mr Bernardi. So when you look at the cross benches in the Senate, you'll notice that it is dominated by people who have a rabid right-wing agenda, whether it's economic or social, it's a right-wing agenda. Why are there never any people who've got a more anti-authoritarian viewpoint in the cross benches? Why are they not elected? by the Australian people and it's very simple one as we saw in the last federal election we have the might of the corporate media and the government guild at ABC ensuring that these people don't get any airtime. but more importantly that they're denigrated every time they put up their hands and two because there is no political parties which are pushing this agenda now I'm not stupid enough to think that public interest before corporate interest is going to you know you know, be elected. But I am stupid enough to think that if we have a registered political party who are standing candidates in especially by-elections, we can influence the political agenda. We can raise ideas like I have been discussing today about corporate welfare, about expanding the public sector, about getting the state to meet its responsibility to its citizens. Now, I outsource it to two or three You know, organisations, you know, down the road. So, public interest before corporate interest has been formed to do that. But we need 550 members on the Australian electoral roll, federal electoral roll, in order to apply for registration as a federal political party, which does give us some advantages. It would allow us to nominate people in any electorate across the country, in any by election. And it also allow us to have the name of the political party, which actually encapsulates our concepts: the interests of the many before the few, public interests before corporate interests. Now, obviously, there are many registered political party over forty-five, but very few have a broad-based agenda. Most have specific agendas that are issue-oriented. We're different. We have a broad-based agenda. I suggest you go to our. Uh, Our uh, website, pipsy.net Have a look Download the application form Join Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Uh, uh, The other suggestion I make is uh, You can look at our look at my Facebook pages Joseph Toscano Or Toscano for the Public Or Public Interest Before Corporate Interests uh, The YouTube channel Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Twitter stream Pipsy P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. Steps to a home, Instagram. And the list goes on and on. So there are a lot of activities. The essence is, are you interested in taking matters further? Are you happy just to sit back and complain? That's the essence. They love us to be carping, complaining consumers. They can deal with carping, complaining consumers. They can deal with terrorists. They need terrorists in order to survive. But they can't deal with people like us. People who are willing to use the system and also willing to use non-violent direct action to raise issues that need to be raised and addressed in this country. And that is the dilemma. Very few people are raising issues which need to be addressed in a consistent manner. Think about it. The ball's in your court. Joining public interest before corporate interest is one way. Another way is getting involved in local activist groups. Another way is, you know, just um, assisting groups that are doing something financially. If you're not happy with what's around, form your own group. But ultimately... Change comes from an informed public. It doesn't come from a public that doesn't know the facts. In an era of social media where facts and fiction are intertwined, it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to make rational decisions about issues which they face. Think about it. Join us, join us, get involved, think about it. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052, Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. That's Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listening to The Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station. Courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3 org that's .au. It's also podcasts. Go to 3cr.org.au. And all those people who pledged to the fund, send in your cash. We've got about 500 to collect. Thank you. Once again, we've raised about 11400 We need another 500 uh, people to pay their pledges. Listening to The Anarchist World this week, next week, on your local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national, and international events. Poisoning their brainwash minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.